0: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition. The 54th edition of Vinitali will be held from the 10th to the 13th of April, right here in Verona. To discover more about Vinitali and get your tickets, visit vinitaly.com This year, the Italian Wine Podcast will be live and in person in Pavilion 6, Stand A7. So come on down and say hello.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. With a growing list of communication channels available to us and a shift in at-home experiences, what does PR even mean these days? In today's episode, we talk to Lindsay Dyke, a Portland-based publicist who specializes in wine and food PR. She'll give us the skinny on everything from influencers to Instagram to radio to events with some passionate millennial pleas thrown in for good measure. Let's get into it. Lindsay! (laughs) Welcome. I am so pleased to have you here joining me today. Um, You are part of my unofficial series that's called Ask the Millennial, and I have many, many questions for you. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. So, Lindsay, you are the founder of a PR agency, that works on the West coast of the U S and you focus specifically on food, wine, travel, and really like the, the lifestyle adjacent products,
2: correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, field APR does all of that. And really the connecting thread is, um, any product or brand or person creating an experience that has a strong sense of place. So I like working with agricultural products and experiences and restaurants that connect back to the land and the environment. Why? I mean, why the sense of place? Why terroir really
1: as a part of a a marketing niche?
2: Yes, I will. After when I started to launch Field Day, I was uh, asking myself, like, what is it about This PR niche that really draws me in because my bread and butter is in wine and the wine industry here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, really is my home, my home industry. But I love working with people that uh, bring that same sense of, uh, like sense of place and terroir into other aspects of food and beverage. So maybe it's a a chef who is connected to wine and and bringing that as well. I just think sense of place is a great motivator and a great storytelling device for um, people making and doing things in food and beverage.
1: So um, one of the things that I notice working in digital marketing is that sometimes for me, PR feels like a really amorphous or ever-changing space. It's probably like people call themselves marketers and maybe they do social media or maybe they do some sort of photography and videography, you know, like, so just very, um, just help us understand what is encapsulated in PR today with all the different ways that we communicate.
2: Oh man, that's, That's a great question. I'm going to answer that question with a little story about me um, and how I kind of found my way into the vocation because um, I think, you know, when I was, I have a degree in English literature and creative writing and growing up, you know, my parents would be like, well, you should be a lawyer because you like asking hard questions or you should be a journalist because, um, you know, you love to write and there are all these uh, career paths, doctor, whatever that took Uh, many many years and I've always been interested uh, just in how people tick and how things work and I love asking those questions and I feel like PR itself um, like a good publicist is extremely curious person and those things that make a good writer or a good interviewer um, or a good communicator in general uh, really fuel a strong PR strategy and strong like kind of gut sense of how public relations work so when it comes to pr now and what it encapsulates i mean this is connecting your um wine brand say with writers and freelancers and editors throughout the u.s and beyond i mean i'm i'm very u.s based so um that's coming from the, the work that I do, but it also looks like helping uh, someone work on their internal communication strategy. So what I'm talking about to these external folks out here uh, is also reflected back in the owned media as well. And it also looks like collaborating uh, with your social marketing team to make sure that That social presence is strong and um, all the work that I'm doing out here to bring people to your story, you're retaining them on the social front. And that can look on my end, like reaching out to influencers and creating events and um, parties and uh, different webinars and things that really draw people in both media and consumer. So,
1: some of those IRL or analog experiences that maybe we haven't had for a little while and we're all looking forward to getting back to. I mean, do you feel like in the past two years you've become really good at messaging and communicating virtual experiences? And, you know, Holly, I think one of the challenges with wine, and this is a bit of an unintentional segue, is that we try to communicate something that tastes. You know, I always say that if I could, if I could communicate how something tastes across digital or social media, I would have just solved wine's biggest problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, how do you develop that messaging? How do you work with a brand to take what is this glorious, tangible product that really how it tastes is the thing that keeps us coming back and get new audiences interested or reactivate audiences who maybe have not been a part of events and experiences for two years.
2: Hmm. That's a good multifaceted question, Polly. (laughs) So many layers. Answer, (laughs) Answer any part of that you want. Um, I think when it comes to the virtual space, uh, I know personally, um, when COVID-19 hit in March 2020 and um, things began shutting down, um, I felt that uh, on a personal level, that gut punch of like, oh, these hopes, the, the way that I know PR is done. Um, you know going to desk sites in New York City uh, entertaining at media dinners um, in in Portland or other cities I traveled to uh, showing up at industry events around um, in major markets you know add in here that, that was all gone and so I started to feel extremely anxious of like how can I continue to make those relationships and connect with people. And I think it on um, the public relations side of things, the pandemic kind of caused us all to sit back and ask ourselves, like, what is our value add to the industry um, if we don't have these tactile in-person relationships? And I think the lesson I got out of it is that sliding into DMs with a, you know, a well-researched and really relationship-driven mention or request or just saying hi th- that you can do those virtual those relationships happen virtually and they're just as important and i feel like i have from the last two years even just really meaningful connections with writers and journalists because i care about people and like it makes my job better to have to know that so and so over here like has um you know, kids that weren't able to be vaccinated for their own, for medical reasons. And I check in with her how that's going. And I, I really care about that. So I feel like those relationships um, have really grown and been great in that virtual sphere. So that answers one of your questions. You have worked in
1: much larger agencies before you established field APR. Mm-hmm. Um Do you feel like that being, you know, a small team or being a one man band really is an added benefit to the wineries that you work with? Because you can know them, you can tell their stories, you can sit in those spaces for them and really represent
2: them well. That's a good question. Uh, yes. I mean, I think I um, my first experience in PR was in book publishing and where I worked in-house for a publisher that made books about the natural world, gardening, science. Um, and I loved the, uh, the aspect of really owning um, everything I was talking about because I was in-house. And so I feel like um, now my work as an independent boutique agency, I get to take that kind of ownership um and kind of like passion and enthusiasm which is i think something that any pr company really needs to bring they need to be a cheerleader for that brand or chef or winemaker and i can bring all of that uh, into this one winery space or this one winemaker talk about their wine and at the same time um on the writer side of things i have several of these relationships um that i'm either working with directly or they're friends in the community or they're people that are making wine that i want to see succeed and so when um someone reaches out to me from imbibe and they're looking for Uh, you know, wines to sample for an aromatic white kind of what's happening in Oregon with those varieties. I can be like, oh, here's my client. Also, I have this person that I don't work with them, but they're doing some really cool stuff and they're a great fit. So I feel like there's uh, a a strong community aspect, especially here in Oregon, that all boats rise.
1: Okay. So if we're talking about the common channels of PR right now or of any kind of messaging. We have traditional or print media. So old school, Um, we've got organic social and we've got paid social.
2: Uh, What am I missing? Um, I think... Within traditional media, there's, there's several more pockets that are important um, depending on um, your market and your goals. So broadcast, I think, on a regional level is extremely important for restaurants and wineries and beyond. Um, and then podcasts as well. I would say, like when I'm talking to a client, I'm I'm spending less time talking about one-off blogs or things that really mattered um, earlier in the teens or in the aughts, and now I'm focusing on podcasts and on broadcast and online outlets and print as well. But it just depends on what the goals are.
1: Super interesting. So I didn't realize that broadcast was still really an active channel for pr i guess because i live so much in a digital space that that that's that's an eye opener for me um, how do you because okay just disclosure you and i have worked as part of a team in the past where by forest is on the digital marketing side and you're on the pr side and we have our client as well so how do you actually bring all of these omni-channel communications together in a way that is consistent and succinct across multiple divergent channels?
2: Mm, That's a really good question. And I think it's one that um, I'm always trying to optimize under a single umbrella strategy, Uh, And that's certainly always the goal. But in my work, I always leave room for, again, that kind of organic connection. Um, Maybe something's popping up in um, podcast world or on Twitter for uh, food writer Twitter or something like that, that is kind of outside of that multi-channel strategy. And I'm going to also jump on that because I feel like uh, one the picture I always have of myself and this work and maybe this is um, you know really announcing that I grew up in the 90s but um, is from the 101 Dalmatians where I feel like there's one point where all the puppies are running through the snow and they're leaving all their paw prints and everything and then Pongo goes back and like has a little branch in his mouth and wipes up all the tracks <laughs> and so I feel like I love if- that <laughs> so yeah hang with me if there's 101 p- these are all of our channels and they're all moving forward and it's like okay we have this strategy and it's uh it's moving forward great but there's also the the publication also needs to be on the back end of that kind of sweeping everything up making sure that no leads have um, dropped off and there isn't any other potential channel or crossover content area that um that i've missed that could potentially be explored
1: so really kind of holding that form, you know, like that being the guardian of that space, because I know that brands can be very enthused by shiny things or very involved in the day-to-day must happen, but there has to be someone who's uh caring for the space and the overarching strategy. So that that's really where you sit in in that um in that pyramid of work.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think to that point, um, something that the last two and a half years really uh, has underlined for me is that um, it's important we can set our strategy. And, you know, it's, I'm listening to the brand leaders and the stakeholders, and I'm trying to bring in where the news cycle as close to their goals as possible. And at the same time, it's important for me as an outside voice to um, remind them and keep them true to both their brand, but also like the the goals they have, whether it's like sustainability, diversity, equity. These are things that are meaningful, especially to millennial and Gen Z consumers like myself. And so I feel like... Um, I think when I first started, I didn't realize that to do PR work and to really be a value add, you need a strong gut sense of what is right and what is wrong. And uh, you really want to lean in that to be um, a voice of reason and protection almost for your clients. So you can help them navigate that space and make good choices that are also real choices. Like, I think as a publicist, I sometimes people think, oh, a PR campaign, it's like, it's made up or it's like shiny, shiny, uh, stuff. Like you said, it's not real. And I think going back to my branding around that sense of place and terroir, I think, um, why that speaks to me is that if I'm talking about something, I want it to be a hundred percent authentic. It doesn't need to be precious. It doesn't need to be like, um, I, yeah, I don't know. It just needs to be truly real. So the writers and the media folks know that I'm a trustable source, and also so I know that the stakeholders and the brands I'm working with are headed in a strong direction that they can build on for years to come.
1: You have introduced so many topics that I want to talk about. Millennials and Gen Z. I've decided from now on, I'm calling all of you sub-Gen Xers. We Gen X do not get enough props in the world, and you're all younger than us, and And so instead of sub-40s, sub-35, millennials and Gen Z, you know what? You're all just sub-Xers. So, <laughs> all right. Are, are the younger generations, are you killing the wine industry?
2: <laughs> I think that we're making it better. <laughs> oh, please. share. <laughs>
1: Why? Why? Why the shade, man? Why <laughs> everybody's saying that millennials are cool in the wine industry? You're one of them. You work in wine.
2: Kick it down. <laughs> Amazing. Um, no, I mean, I think I was drawn to wine because of its potential for storytelling and it's, um, center on the community table. And it's, uh, there's so many reasons we could go on about that forever. And so certainly I I don't want to come across as like, oh, I'm, you know, someone who's going to disrupt the industry or like, I don't like what anyone's ever done because there's, um, generations of people that have been working on perfecting this thing. Um, for for a long long time and it's you know it's a big river and I'm just a part of that <laughs> so uh, with that being said you know I I, I that think- in itself that that answer
1: in itself is so indicative of a lot of the difference that we see working in wine between the older than Gen Xers and the younger than Gen Xers is that notion of you know what. It's collaborative. I'm part of a flow. There are people who have come before me. There are people who will come after me. I'm not the be all end all because boomers got a bit of ego.
2: <laughs> we can all agree on that, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, they have. So, ego. so
1: you're not killing the wine industry.
2: <laughs> no, um, I, I was thinking a lot about this, and I was texting some of my friends who also share various um, age demographics with me uh, about what it is. Um, what they think about wine and, and how like their approach to wine affects their buying habits. And I feel like, um, at the end of the day, we're not killing the wine industry, but we're asking, um, questions that again, didn't apply maybe to the Robert Parker generation, where it's about, uh, I feel like we still want, we still want luxury and we want luxury experiences but it's 2022 it's not 1922 so that luxury has to come with the other realistic truths about our world climate change is real um you know worker safety is paramount and worker equity and we're coming with an understanding that we can't scale a product just for scaling it and um live a good life and i think that that expectation goes from our work and into kind of everything we consume. And again, grain of salt. I'm talking to you from Portland, Oregon, which uh, I think has a really specific, this is very much like our cultural approach in general. So um, grain of salt there as well.
1: Well, I, I don't know that we have to add too much of a grain of salt because it ties in with all of the qualitative data that we're accumulating around, you know, sub-Gen Xers. Um, some interesting things, though, that I'd love your take on. What factors actually influence their spending? Not just their answers, but like genuinely. And And the example of that that we see is are younger drinkers really willing to pay more or accept variety in quality and experience for something that is
2: sustainable Mm. or meets a value system? That's a good question. I think so. I mean, on one hand, if you walk into any of the hot wine bars in Portland right now on a Wednesday night, like it's going to be full Um, of people buying full bottles or uh, like tasting their way through whatever's on glass pour right now and walking away spending, um, you know, a hundred dollars plus gratuity at the end of the night. Like I think um, that experience is happening and it's people in their uh, 20s and 30s with Disposable income that are really pushing that again. The hot wine bars in Portland are wine bars that uh, are they're falling under the umbrella of natural wine to an exclusive point. Like maybe it's just natural wine, and they will have Oregon or American offerings, and they are connecting to that. But they have uh, offerings from Europe and other regions as well.
1: So why natural wine? What's the appeal?
2: (laughs) It's pretty. I it's mean, pretty. <laughs> I do think um, there it's, it is, what I mean by that is that there's like, it, natural wine almost is like a prism, I think, especially to people who uh, don't have years uh, in the industry or are coming with any kind of certification or knowledge background because, uh, because uh, like a producer might change their label based on. Um, like uh, the way they're feeling or they might have so many skews and so many labels that uh, i just, I feel like the graphic design element is, is huge where um, it's the uh, natural wine space is uh, graphically designed to be a bit obscure. And there's almost like, <laughs> I don't know if there's a nihilism in it, but there is a sense of like, it's impenetrable. So might as well just taste through it all and see what you like. They've done, that industry has done a wonderful job of making it about like that anyone can come to the table and what you like is important and at the same time there is like a destination that we're aiming for um that and that as you taste through it you like get closer to you get a palate for and more experience with so I haven't, um, I've thought a lot about this and I have a lot of conversations about this, but I haven't had to really talk about it on a podcast before. So (laughs) I I hope I'm getting close. Okay.
1: We're working through it together. Okay. So we've talked about this notion that storytelling is really important and that messaging is really important and that authenticity is really important. How do we balance authenticity with segmentation? So that if I have a product that appeals to innumerable generations, I'm not, I, I it's not like I'm saying one thing to sub-gen Xers and another thing to boomers. Like how do you deal with that as the storyteller for brands?
2: When you are looking at your multiple channels, it's really important to run the diagnostics on the demographics and see who is looking at what because I mean that's one reason that regional broadcast is important because if you want um, boomers and Gen Xers and and whatnot to be at an event then you're you're probably have a higher likelihood of reaching people who will see that on the news and um, that will shift them to become consumers or that will push them to the event and get butts and seats like that um, is just something I've seen happen over and over again And at the same time, um, on Instagram, you want to, you want to have a, uh, a link to the event in your bio. You need to be posting stories about the event there at, um, a rate that is not overwhelming, but also make sure that people don't forget about you. So I think that, um, part of the answer is you do have different messaging and, um, you put that out through different channels, but, uh, it shouldn't, the tone of the messaging maybe shouldn't change. Like you shouldn't be, um, like on TikTok, I think as a brand being like, we're doing like TikTok trends. And then at the same time, talking to your 50, 60 plus consumers, like, oh, those people like the the young people, or I, I don't know. I feel like there's a way to be inclusive about it. And it's really important to audit all your channels to make sure that at the end of the day, um, that messaging is the same. I have a question then for you <laughs> that I'm thinking about. Maybe it can be for both of us, which is like, do you, I'm wondering, can you bring um, the the messaging that we're feel, that I feel like millennials want, which is uh, a strong story, a strong sense of environmental protection, a strong sense of Um, diversity and equity, but also like self-knowledge. These are all um, things that uh, I think millennials want in a wine product. And can you leave with these to uh, another generation and still find sales? I certainly think so with the brands that I work with and the wines that I work with. So I guess I answered my question.
1: (laughs) Are you seeing a lot of brands move toward purposeful or purpose-driven communications, messaging?
2: Yes, I I think so. And I think, um, you know, the brands that started this before 2020, um, you know, even dipping their toe in um, kind of aligning their product with uh, a mission or um, mission-driven outlook, I think have a big head start because they have, um, a foundation they've already laid. But I, I think uh, all brands across the wine industry are, are finding that um, this is something that they're being called to the table to speak to. At the same time, if there's nothing there like um, that's truly newsworthy or is really um, moving uh, the organization in a different direction or uh, if, if no one is internally addressing equity or if no one is internally addressing um, uh, worker safety and compensation, then um, then there's no point in communicating that to the consumer audience. And so I feel like if you have the mission, then you need to be communicating it. I've talked to some, uh, and this happens with smaller, uh, smaller brands, especially who are people that they're they're making their wine it's a small team or it's just them and they're like well I, w- I do i give back a portion of my proceeds to this um diversity movement in wine organization or a portion of my proceeds to this environmental organization but i don't want to like i don't want to cheapen that by talking about it and talking about it is so important and there are ways to do that uh that are communicating to to your people who are either your already your consumers are going to be, that this is uh, important to the core of your brand. That is something that is um, about communication and it's not about ego and it doesn't cheapen the work you're doing. Um, it's more of like a clarion call and that is vital to do. And on the flip side, I would say that brands that Either a don't have the bandwidth. It's like figure out how you can get the bandwidth to do this authentically and bring in a consultant. Or uh, I mean, this, this is something that we work with NPR all the time um, because if we're going to be speaking about this and drafting these pitches, then we want to make sure that the data is there, that the numbers are there, and the relationships are there and they're strong. So that's something that. I work with brands on and help with explicitly as well. Uh, But it's better at the end of the day to uh, not post anything that is not true to who you are as a team. So something I really,
1: really want to talk about, um, because I have worked in a team with you and watched you do this. You do a lot of work around influencers. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I get so many questions. I mean, we did a whole real business of wine a couple of years ago that was all about influencer marketing. And I see brands make bad decisions, get taken advantage of, have unrealistic expectations around it. So here's an opportunity. Give us kind of like the masterclass in a matter of minutes <laughs> on influencer marketing. How does it work? How do you do it right? Can you do it yourself? do you need to call Lindsay? You know, let's
2: hear it. <laughs> well, you have to pay for the masterclass, but I can give you some basics that <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, are, are a good way to get started. Yeah. It's extremely vital. Um, not only for public awareness and um, driving a, social media users to your site your story your product. it's important because um, you're also getting uh, free or collaborative content on some level um, from users outside of your main stakeholders and this can this opens up like uh, a diversity of, of views on your product what it looks like, if you are headquartered here in Oregon making wine, it means we can work with people in Texas, and Boston, and Chicago, and key markets that want Oregon wine. And we're working with people that are boots on the ground there, having an innate understanding of the community, Um, and are really enthusiastic because yeah, there's some cutthroat, you know, fakey influencers out there, but there's not that many of them. Most of them are really enthusiastic people who really care about the industry and are doing this because I don't know where they get the energy. It's so much work. So I think like the takeaway is every time you read a hot take on, oh, influencers in in wine, know that that influencer that's, um, you know, getting, uh, blasted on main like they are doing so much work um to do what they do and be involved so i think um you it's important to know what you want out of it before you engage with the influencer so ask yourself ask your team are we looking for um content? Are we looking for an ongoing relationship? Are we looking for someone to help promote an event or um, a new item? These are all important questions because the the closer you can define the parameter of that ask when you slide into their DMs, the better your results will be. um, Because there are things you can and can't ask for depending on what you want and how much you want to pay. Because at the end of the day, these are it's best to treat influencers like writers like traditional media connectors um because that is what they're doing um there's an opportunity to pay folks and when you pay them in some kind of uh collaboration then you get to ask for more data if data is what you want, but um, just kind of starting that relationship. Hey, I see what you're doing, I really like it, here's our wine, I'd love for you to try it. And then let let your product do the talking if you have the research upfront, follow their stuff, like their posts, like it's all a reciprocal relationship.
1: So what's really interesting for me to hear you say is treat them like writers because in my head i would have thought it would have been treat them like advertisers but it's not right so that that's really interesting is that we need to be looking at them as an arm of a communication strategy not an arm of an
2: advertising strategy mhm yes uh, that's so my tier of outreach is always uh kind of a, a writer style of outreach first and then i let the influencers lead me where they want to go and if that is deeper into advertising because that's um that's where their content is going great i'm open to talking about it um i might not push that forward because it's not what my client wants but um it's just kind of letting the influencers lead and then that also um because if if you get in there and push someone to uh be like to communicate your points, your brand points, uh, your visuals, you're going to lose that creativity, um, from them. And you're going to lose that, uh, reciprocal relationship and the ability to go back to them, um, in the future.
1: Wow. That was, that was good masterclass information. I, I really appreciate that. Are there any channels that you're finding work best so obviously instagram being the big one but we're seeing a big drive toward youtube and of course i mean tiktok so what what works do they all work equally well
2: depending upon your audience (laughs) well first i need to out myself as i do have a tiktok but i've only made one tiktok and it's about the chicken's That I own in my backyard. So um, I I get uh, most of my TikTok knowledge and news through Instagram. (laughs) So there's that, but I am studying the form. I'm, I'm in the conversation and um, yeah, I think they all matter and they all have different impacts. It just goes back to the core principle of asking you and your team, what are our goals? Um, what do we have time for? Cause I think another, uh, part of my job is to come in and evaluate, work with you to evaluate what your team can actually do. Um, because it's important for me, uh, to make sure that we're going to have the energy to keep pushing these things forward in two months and six months in a year. If you bring me on, like onto the team, I could Create lots of homework for you, and we could do, we could chase every lead, but uh, I'm very aware um, just in my own life and in what I want for my work life balance that you can't go 120% the whole time. So we got to figure out what matters and push that.
1: I, I actually love that you said that because that's something that we see with clients all the time too is that I sit there and I'm like, okay. I can easily just sit at my desk and give you lots and lots of things to do, but what do we have sustainable efforts for? Because that's also that's what you've just alluded to, right? This isn't one off. You're not going to pay for one Instagram post and blow up your business. This is part of a sustainable communication and marketing effort. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and maybe that's Lindsay shaking her head.
2: yeah I'm saying yes girl <laughs> um, yeah you have to evaluate who's on your team maybe you have someone that is a creative powerhouse and um, you know we can advise on on the, something creative viral campaigns or that have the potential to go viral or maybe that's not y'all but you have a beautiful estate vineyard um that's just begging to be shot in every lighting and you know there's ways to do it and even with tiktok i mean uh my advice there is that if you have um like as niche as you can go like tiktok has um space for that so of course there's the I was talking to a brand manager friend of mine who runs... uh, She was working on a TikTok um, outlet for uh, a a non-alcoholic drinks brand. And she was telling me how she was getting some really great traction from running their TikTok channel and getting some viral hits. But the workload of doing that was so extreme that all the other channels suffered. And did it really convert users into... uh, customers it, it didn't so she was getting really a lot of creative success, but um, it was kind of driving her into the ground and it was ultimately something that they had to let go of so it's it's always i think um even the success of engagement doesn't always translate to um, the purchases or your bottom line
1: yeah and that that is a, a difficult thing when we're working, especially in the space where we've got brand managers or we've got um you know, corporate overlords who want those short-term gains. They want the monthly results. They want the, well, how much did this sell instead of seeing all of these efforts as part of a long-term brand growth and awareness strategy. So, um, I mean, you'll be looking just like I sit around and look at websites all the time. You'll be looking at lots of campaigns that are out in the world. Are there any examples of brands who are absolutely nailing multi-generational messaging?
2: mm mm-hmm. Um, that is a great question. Uh, I feel like, um, this is a client of mine, so I'm biased, but I think if you look at what's happening with Soder Vineyards, um, with their marketing channels on their Instagram, um, I know that their demographic runs the gamut of generations, um, actively purchasing wine right now. And they have a really strong sense of style that encapsulates, um, their brand and their offerings, and um, they know what they love and they know what they do well, and they don't waver from speaking to that. Um, And I think, you know, I I walk into almost any market um, or wine shop in Portland and I hear folks, again, of all demographics asking for their wine. So it's finding a strong storyteller. It's um, figuring out what you know really well. And, um, you know, it's also bringing in support. So, you know, not to post more than five times in one day, you should really be posting two to three times a week. That's, that's a nice, sweet spot.
1: (laughs) Next question. How important is it for these brands, like the ones that you're discussing to have
2: younger staff members and to give them some agency? Yes. Oh, Girl, or this is uh, something I feel very passionate about because I think that we're talking about what millennials want when they're buying um, luxury everyday products. It also crosses over into like, what do they want in the workforce? And I can tell you, they want agency, they want respect, they want room to try things out, and um, the knowledge that when those, some of those things are trying fails that you have their back and uh, it's on to the next thing. I think that there's um, a strong desire for that. And if you bring folks onto your team and you give them that space, um, as well as a clear path of growth, because we're very, I think, driven overall and growth minded, then you're going to have people that will ride very hard for your brand.
1: I've stood on stage. I've answered the question, how do we sell wine to millennials? And I don't know. I just look at it and I think that wine forgets that there are so many of you who work in our space. Now, I interviewed a, a bar owner, um, so award-winning wine bar owner who's 26, who has an absolutely kick-ass business full of multi-generational drinkers. We've got someone like Pauline Vickard, who I refer to often, that I think we all forget that she is generationally Uh, a millennial, even though she's, you know, partway through her MW studies. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to pass this buck to you and to all of you and and to let you answer these questions and stand on stage.
2: It's true. I mean, I don't know why people uh, of this demographic you're speaking of are still driven to, um, you know, Post on their blogs what they hate about wine influencers or uh, millennial buyers or bad experiences they've had. I think there's um, enough wine in the world for everyone to have what they like. And if there's any takeaway from that I've learned from sitting at uh, wine bars um, and restaurants around the country for the last several years, it's that you get to drink what you like that is a perfect
1: conclusion. Thank you, Lindsay. I really appreciate you coming on. One thing that I love, um, and I'll just kind of scoot this in to the convo is that all brands, it's not just wine. All brands are made up of people kind of like you and I who sit quietly in the background and do our work. I mean, I'm not quiet cause I got this podcast, but normally I'm quiet, right? We sit quietly in the background and, and all these almost like introverts who are making all of our clients look and sound and communicate well. But we're really quite quiet people. I know for you, coming onto a podcast is a little bit out of the box, despite the fact that you get so many of your clients onto podcasts all across the industry. So... Thank you for letting us kind of pull you out of the introvert box to <laughs> ask you some questions. Um, now, I, you have made an offer that I love and adore. Um, you're actually the first person who's been on my podcast to do this, which is you like talking to people. You like answering questions. And you've said that if anyone has any questions for you, that they can reach out to you, preferably by DM on your Instagram account, which is Field Day PR. And that they can find you online at fielddaypr.com. What I would say is if people want to ask you questions, don't ask for the free masterclass. Pay her for her work. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Lindsay.
2: Oh, thanks for this opportunity.
1: And that's a wrap for this episode of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Lindsay, for joining us today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vignitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition, the biggest drinks trade fair in the world. For more information about Vignitali and tickets, visit vignitali.com. And remember to subscribe to Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find us at italianwinepodcast.com.